Well, good morning, church. How are we? Yes, if you have your Bibles, would you open to the passage that you just heard read for you in Luke chapter 19? That is going to be our passage for today. Guys, I am so excited to be back with you, but haven't the last two weeks been incredible? We had Preston Crow, we had Neil Marsh. Didn't they do a great job, church? Can we give them a hand clap of appreciation this morning? So you have had the sermon series kicked off and then into week two, and now you're stuck with me the last two weeks of this sermon series. And, and so far, we've looked at the art of relationships. What, is it, what does it mean for us to, to look back in, in the history of who we are, where we come from, the cloth in which we are cut? For some, you may wear that as a badge of honor, but for others, you may hide that fact because you don't even like that, much less wanting other people to know who you are or where you come from. Last week, Pastor Neil led us in this, this idea of, okay, how can we truly know and be known? Gave us some great practical helps on, on how to engage those relationships every single day. But today, I want us to remember that we all have a calling. And that calling is much bigger and it's, it's, it's much deeper than just simply being relational. That calling is much bigger than just knowing and being known. Those are just means that help us get to the end or to the call that's on our life. Every believer, every man and woman who have been born again have a call of God on their life. You may be sitting here today and say, Josh, are you going to tell me that call? I've been waiting my whole life. Guys, I got something for you. The call on every believer's life is the same. It may look differently in how we do it, but the call is the same. We are called to make disciples. We are called to, to go, to baptize, and to teach, and to trust that God is going to be with, with us until the very end of the age. And so, as you have journeyed through this Art of Relationship series, and maybe you have heard that call sometime before in your life, or maybe even today, you are hearing it again. Some of you in this room are thinking, yes, Josh, let's go. I am ready to go and make disciples. I am ready to baptize. I'm ready to teach. I want to see what God is going to do. Here I am, Lord. Send me. But if you're like most people, that's not you. Most people hear that call and say, I'm glad somebody else gets that call. That's, that's not me. Josh, if, 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 if you knew me, if you knew my story, if you knew where I came from, no way you would say that that call is applied to my life. That's for the holy rollers. That's for the people who are in church every Sunday. That's for the people who have their lives together. Hey, I want to do a quick thing in this room, okay? And hopefully what it's going to do, it's going to put us all on level playing field, all right? Now, you got to play my game for it to work. You promise to play my game? Here we go. If you have ever sinned, would you raise your hand? Look around. Keep it up. Be proud. Look around. Every hand should be up. And if you didn't see a hand up, they're prideful and that's sin. So there's that. <laughs> All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's glorious standard. There is no holy roller, and then there is no other group that isn't qualified to come and lead. We are all broken, but God in his grace has extended salvation, redemption, and restoration to his children. The fact that you are a sinner saved by grace does not disqualify you. It is the only thing that qualifies you. 
And so as we come to this today, you may still say, Josh, you, you don't understand. You don't understand my life. You don't understand what I've done. You don't understand the things that I have already been a part of. No way, if you knew those things, would you say that the call of the Great Commission to make disciples is to be on my life. Maybe you sit here and you hear the words of Romans 3.23 and it weighs you down for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Some of you in this room, you feel the weight of that because it's not like past tense, I have sinned a long time ago, but now I'm better, but like I'm living it out every day. I'm living in that sin and it's so, so weighty. The goal of this series is to help everyone realize that everyone has fallen short of God's glorious standard and we are all broken. And God's glorious providence though He does know you fully. He knows what you used to do. He knows what you are doing now. He knows what you did last night. And in his grace and mercy, he still extends salvation to you. That is the good news of the gospel. A God who fully knows us still fully loves us. That's why this series. And that's where we pick ourselves up today. Luke chapter 19, we are going to look at the account of a man named Zacchaeus. Now, I say that name, how many of you are already singing the song? Zacchaeus was a wee little, I'm telling you, I've written through this sermon and the song is playing in my mind. We're going to try to get through it without singing it, okay? Now, full context with this, as you are turning to Luke 19, and we're going to be in, in verses 1 through 10. This is, now understand, when we, when we have genre, this is in the genre of the Gospels. This is in Luke's account of the Gospel. Luke has many themes, but one of his main themes of his Gospel is to show that Jesus, holy and set apart, loves and deals with sinners. That's good news for us. But we see where he is working with them. He lives with them. He is intentionally going after them to show his glory and his might in a world that desperately needs to see it, okay? So in full context here, chapter 18 and 19 need to be understood together. Because if you go back to chapter 18, you're going to hear the account of the rich young ruler. You remember that guy? Do you remember that he comes to Jesus and and effectively he tries to prove to Jesus that he has done enough good deeds to be in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, yeah, but one thing you still haven't done. Go sell all all your possessions and give it to the poor and then follow me. And what does it say about the rich young ruler? What happened? He goes away, what? Sad. So you have that contrasted with Zacchaeus. And for those who know the story, you know the ending is drastically different than that. And it's to show where the rich young ruler was how you don't respond to the gospel invitation and how Zacchaeus is how you respond to the gospel invitation. I wanted you to know that before we jump in because that's going to be important in how we understand it, okay? So Luke 19, verse 1. Let's dive in together. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. All right, verse 1 and 2 set the scene for us. They're coming towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He and his disciples are journeying through Jericho. And in this scene, we see a man named Zacchaeus and two really important details about him. Number one is he is a chief tax collector. And number two, he's really good at it. He's rich. As we see in this theme, Jesus is, is in the theme of the Gospel of Luke, we see that Jesus is, is running after the unlovely. And of all the unlovely types that we can find in the Bible, tax collectors were the worst. 
You may sit here and say, Josh, no, no, tax collectors can't be the worst. What about murderers? What about cheaters? What about all of those things? No, for the Jewish people, there was nothing worse than a tax collector. Why? Because a tax collector was a Jew who traded out their own heritage to work for Rome, to get the taxes that Rome wanted, that the emperor wanted, and and here's how it would work. They would say, if you get what we desire from the people, you can charge whatever you want on top of that, and we will enforce that for you as long as we get our money. And so it would be even said of some first century uh, historians that tax collectors were considered worse than murderers in the first century. That they were walking dead men because they had betrayed the people that they came from. Not only that, but they have gotten rich off the poor. So as we look to this, when we read tax collector in the New Testament, we are reading about someone that has turned against their own people, that have chosen to fleece them every day for all that they had. And if they didn't pay, Roman army was going to deal with them harshly. All right, so when we look to this, back to the account, we have a man named Zacchaeus. Not only is he a tax collector, he is the chief tax collector of that area. He has become very rich, meaning he has fleeced a lot of people for a long time. Let's go to verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on the account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Church, don't miss this. Zacchaeus was not seeking Jesus to trust him. He was not seeking Jesus to surrender his life to him. He wanted to see what all the fuss was about. By the time, this time in Jesus' ministry, getting towards the end, his reputation had followed him and then preceded him. Zacchaeus wanted to see the show, but he couldn't because he was too short. And he sure wasn't about to go to the, the crowd and say, hello, fellow brothers and sister Jewish people. I think I would like to see who Jesus is. Would you mind parting the way so I could get up? How do you think that was going to go for him? So he goes on. He knows the route that Jesus is going. And he comes to this place that has a sycamore tree, and, and he climbs it. You're singing the song right now, aren't you? Okay. Verse 4. So he ran up ahead. He climbed up into the sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. When Jesus gets to that spot... Something incredible happens. Look at verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down, for I must stay at your house today. What did Jesus just call him? What, What word did he use? His name. He used the word Zacchaeus. That's his name. Not tax collector, not rich man, not traitor, not sinner. How did Jesus know his name or where he would be? I don't know. But I do know that he is fully man and fully God. I do believe with all of my heart and the way that I have read and understood the Gospels and the way that Jesus seems to navigate through this life He knew exactly who Zacchaeus was and knew exactly where he would be. And probably in his sovereign providence, God the Father planted that seed of that sycamore tree long ago so it would be ready for him to climb on that day so he could see his Savior. But this is what we do know. 
There's a man named Zacchaeus, a known sinner, hated by just about everyone, hiding in a tree. Number one, we see it from the text so he could see Jesus, but inferred from the text, hiding from the people because they all hate him. And Jesus comes by and calls him by his name. Tells him to hurry down. Get out of the tree right now and extends to him one of the greatest honors of his life. Jesus invites himself into Zacchaeus' home. Church, listen to how huge this is. Nowhere else in the Gospels does Jesus invite himself into somebody else's house. He's invited many times to come and perform miracles, to do something. But this is the first and only time in the Gospels that Jesus looks at somebody and says, come down, I'm going to your house today. This honor may be lost on us today, a little bit in our culture, but to host, especially someone you viewed as important or special, was one of the highest honors ever bestowed on anyone. And typically how that works is you have to know people that know people, that get you an invitation, in with the person that you see as important, and then you have to present this offering to them and extend to them an invitation. And if their schedule would, would allow it, then they would take that, that invitation and accept it and then come to your house and you can host them. This is totally different. This is a man who had no intentions with an interaction with Jesus. He just wanted to see him. He just wanted to know what all the fuss was all about. But instead, Jesus meets him, calls him by name, tells him to hurry down out of the tree, and says, you got to get down here because I'm coming to your house today. Just just take a moment before we get to to verse 6. Don't read it yet. If you're Zacchaeus, how are you feeling right now? You're a known sinner. You're Jew. But you have been cut off from the Jewish people because of your own action. For years, for him to be the chief tax collector, for years, probably decades, he has fleeced the Jewish people. And so now he is all but cut off from the heritage that he came from. And he knows that this man walking towards him named Jesus is a Jew. And evidently, a special one. And all of a sudden, Jesus stops, looks up into the tree, calls him by his name and says, hurry down out of that tree. I got to go to your house. Are you excited about that invitation if that's you? You spent your whole life probably hiding, going to work and coming home from work never being seen in public because you know what the Jews are going to do to you. And now this this guy who who many are starting to murmur is the king of the Jews, the head of the Jews. He knows your name and he's asking, he's demanding that he comes to your house today. Is that a good thing? Well, for a lot of people, that's how we feel when we get conviction from the Spirit of God. Like, like we, we receive that as some type of offense. Like, oh no, we are found out. Oh no, I haven't hid my sin or my shame well. He knows. But his response is totally different than that. Look at verse 6. So he, Zacchaeus, hurried and came down and received him. What's the last word of that verse? Joyfully. 
So Zacchaeus hears his name called, hears the invitation to come down out of the tree, and he hurries down out of the tree and receives him joyfully. The word joyfully, chairin, it's in the Greek, and this is, what it, this is what it means. One of the meanings is this, it's the joy of something that was lost being found, chairin. Great conversation starting for you this week. You know a little bit of Greek, have a little guttural sound at the end. If you don't spit, you didn't say it right. Do you remember Jesus' parable about the 99 sheep and how he leaves the 99 to go find the one? Have you ever wondered how that one felt when Jesus found him? Chirin. Can you imagine the rejoicing that sheep had when he knew that he was lost and to be apart from the flock, to be away from the shepherd? He has no hope. Life is over. But now the shepherd has come, found him, and brings him back to the flock. It is the joy that overwhelms him. That's the same word here. You have a man who was not expecting this. He felt cut off from the flock of God. But in this moment, the good shepherd came and found him, called him by his name, and said, I'm coming to your house. So he runs down out of the tree, and he embraces him joyfully. When the Savior called his name, there was no more guilt, no more shame, no more hiding. When he spoke his name, there was only freedom and only life. As incredible as this moment is, you would have thought that everyone in the crowd would have jumped up with joy, wiping away happy tears from their eyes, hitting them with a slow clap of approval. But is that what the crowd did? Verse 7. When they saw it, they grumbled. Here's what they said. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Right, read, read that line again. Read what they are saying as they are grumbling. He, is, he, Christ, Jesus, has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. You want to see some amazing foreshadowing in the Scripture? At the beginning of this account, who is the anger geared towards? Zacchaeus. Who's the anger geared towards now? Jesus. It's what happens when Jesus calls your name. What was yours is now his. And what he has, he gives to you freely. Beautiful foreshadowing of what's to come. But guys, just, just listen in on this. Why were they angry at him? Why, why were they grumbling? Speaking of parables, we talked about the 99 sheep. Do you remember the parable of the prodigal son? Do you remember the one who leaves and squanders his his inheritance. But there was another brother, wasn't there? The one who stayed, the one who believed that he didn't get what he deserved, or at least believed that he should have gotten more than the brother who was the prodigal son. The one who stayed home, who did things the right way. This is a large crowd of older brothers. But let's get back to Zacchaeus. What was his response to all of this? Verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood, and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Church, Zacchaeus repents. Have you ever, you ever wondered what that word means, to repent? 
So when we, when we get to the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts, Luke writes that as well. And it talks about whenever, whenever Pentecost is, is, is happening and Peter is preaching the sermon and, and he really, he's not even close to being done. He gets halfway through and the people stop him and they, it says that they're cut to the heart for what they are hearing. They know that they have fallen short of God's glory and they know that condemnation is sure to fall on them. And they said, what must we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. What does that big word mean? This is the picture of true repentance. Repentance is twofold. Number one, it is a brokenness over sin. But that's not all repentance is. It can't just be, I'm sorry for what I've done. That's an apology. That's not repentance. In addition to the brokenness over sin, by God's grace and in the power of the Holy Spirit, it's a change of sinful action. So we are broken over sin, and we are changing the action that put us in that place in the first place. So we see a picture of what true repentance is. This verse gives us a glimpse into a sinful heart broken by the love of Christ. The Jewish law in Leviticus chapter 6, verse 5. Now hear me out. Zacchaeus would know this very well, being a very educated man, very smart. To be a tax collector, you had to be incredibly academic. The Jewish law says in Leviticus 6, verse 5, that if you defraud or cheat someone, that you must repay what you stole from them with an addition of 20% on top of it. That would be the definition of repentance. In the Old Testament. Effectively, okay, you've made the mistake. You have been caught in the wrong. How do you make this wrong right? The law, the letter of the law states what you stole plus 20%. What does Zacchaeus commit? Zacchaeus commits fourfold. What is fourfold? It's 400%. This isn't a mathematical equation like, okay, well, how have I stole this? And I got to calculate that. And I I took that candy when I was six years old. And how do I get, I need to go to Costco and get the big box and send it back to them. What do I do? The point isn't the math. The point is to show the magnitude of what happens when Christ changes your heart. Where the law says you need to do this, Zacchaeus says, I understand the law, but, but my heart is completely different. What he says, if I have defrauded or cheated anyone, I will repay it at 400%. But he goes even further than that. Look what he says even before he gets to his repayment plan. It's the first half of that verse. He gives away half of his wealth to the poor. Again, this is where you, you would take the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus and you would put them side by side. Jesus never asked him to do this. This is something that he willfully does out of a new and broken heart. But please listen carefully, church. The point of this passage is not how to buy your salvation. There are some of us in this room that have means that we could give away half of what we have and still be filthy rich. The point is not how you buy your salvation. That's not what's happening here. The point of this passage is when Jesus calls your name and he tells you that he's coming to your house, you are changed forever. This interaction happened with a guy that his life and his identity revolved around money. But Jesus sets him free from that identity 
and gives him something new to cling to. Look at verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. All right, so of all the things that would have caused Zacchaeus' heart to leap with joy, this would be the biggest and the best moment. Jesus makes the declaration of his salvation and restores to him what he thought was lost forever. What does it mean to be a son of Abraham? Who were the sons and the daughters of Abraham? What people? The Jewish people. Was Zacchaeus Jewish? Yes. But he was cut off from the Jewish people because of what he had done how he had lived, the life that he was currently in, the way in which he was doing life had cut him off from his heritage. Zacchaeus continued to live a life of sin because he believed that what he had done already disqualified him and cut him off from his people. Church, how many times do we take that mentality with sin? You know it's wrong, but you believe since you've already done it, you've already messed up, might as well stay in it. Is that too heavy for you? Can I make it an easier, funnier illustration? Would that help us out a little bit? How many of you have ever been on a good diet? You're nailing it. You're eating well. A spouse that will be unnamed brings home ice cream. I'm just saying, hypothetically speaking. And they may know your favorite is cookie dough two-step. But you've been good. You've been working. You've been grinding. You've been at the gym. And they may know your weakness is like 9 o'clock at night, per se. Oh, hypothetically speaking, never be. She's perfect. For the kids. Babe, you want an ice cream cone? Yes, I do. It's just one, one scoop. How many of you have ever eaten one scoop of ice cream and that's it? No hands? You raise your hand, I'm calling you a liar in front of this church. And if it is, it wasn't cookie dough two-step. You just don't know what God's grace is to you. You take a bite, what happens? All inhibitions out the window. No more willpower. It's all gone. Why? Because you think, oh, no, I've already messed up. I'll start again. Oh, you guys have been there. Cool. We'll start tomorrow. How many of you was tomorrow six months ago? Great. Fantastic. All right. Silly illustration ends, go back to sin. How many of us deal with sin the same way? We know it's wrong. We like it, but we know it's wrong. We know it's deadly. We know God has already rescued us from it. We know that he has called us away from it. But in our sin and in the temptation, we get to a moment of weakness and we go back to it, but it's just a moment and we fall. And it's in that moment that we should repent of that sin. We should acknowledge the brokenness and change the action. But instead we think, oh no, I've already messed up. I might as well keep going. And then we begin to believe that what we are doing is now who we are. That's why the art of relationships are so important. Because until you understand the love and the redemption and the grace of Jesus Christ, none of your relationships are going to be what they should be. So for him, 
He may have been known as the chief tax collector, but on the day that Zacchaeus was born, he was born as a son of Abraham. But he believed that that was far gone. What happens here, Jesus and his grace restores him. Restores Zacchaeus. Restores what Zacchaeus squandered away and destroyed. Why would Jesus do that? It's not, it's not like Jesus is a neutral party. Jesus in this, in this earthly form is Jewish. Of all people, he should know what a scoundrel Zacchaeus is. Why would, why would the Lord Jesus restore Zacchaeus to the standard in which he once was? Verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That is the mission of Christ. That's the whole gospel of Luke. That's what it is pointing towards. Jesus comes to seek and to save what is lost. Zacchaeus was lost. He was cut off from the fold. He was wandering. He didn't know where to go. And Christ came after him. Please hear this. Nowhere in this account does Zacchaeus do anything to receive salvation. He didn't call out and say, Jesus, Jesus, I'm here. Jesus comes to the tree, stops at the tree, looks up in the tree and calls his name without Zacchaeus ever saying a word. Says, hurry down, get out of the tree, for I'm going to your house. Zacchaeus never offered the invitation. You say, well, wait, Josh, the end of this is Zacchaeus showing what he is doing. He's not doing that saying, Jesus, if you forgive me, I will do these things. What he is saying is, because you are with me, all of it doesn't matter because I have what matters in front of me. Here's my question for us today. What do you do with the Christ who stands before you? I think there's two ways to go about it. One is to be fearful. To, to, to not know how to respond, to, to, to hide, to, to allow guilt and shame to be your story. Or to allow the gospel to do what the gospel does. It takes what was fallen and picks it up. It takes what was broken and restores it. It takes what was lost and makes it found and brings chayrin. It brings joy. Inexpressible, unfiltered joy. But I do believe this is where we have an opportunity to respond. Where Jesus did call his name. Jesus did offer the invitation. It was still up to Zacchaeus to get out of that tree. It was up to Zacchaeus to come down and to receive Christ with joy. The question is, what will you do today? As our worship team comes back out and we get ready to move into a response time, I want you to remember the greatest commandment. Jesus was asked this, that we're trying to trick him, the Pharisees were trying to trick him into to saying something blasphemous so they could arrest him and eventually, eventually kill him. He said, teacher, what is, what is the greatest of the law? Luke 12 records it this way, Luke 12, 30 and 31. 
And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and all of your strength. And the second, the second law is just as great. You shall love your neighbor as you, what? As you love yourself. Church, that's important. If you don't know how to love you, you will never know how to love your neighbor. Josh, that sounds a little pop psychology. Let me, let me be clear on what that is. Whenever, whenever we're, we're looking at life, if we are going to love people like we love ourselves, I'll change it for you. I think I have liberty to do this as I read the scriptures. We are to love people as we have been loved. Okay? If you have never experienced the love of Christ, you will never be able to extend love in the way that you were designed to do it. That's true of your marriage, that's true of your parenting, that's true of your work relationships, and that's true of your church relationships. Church, we believe that our mission here at Broadmoor, and we believe it's probably the global church mission, but it is for who we are, very specifically. We are a united family of faith, joining Jesus on his mission for the glory of God and the good of our communities. We will never be united until we believe and trust the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so listen to me, the same invitation that was extended to Zacchaeus on that day in that tree is the same invitation that's extended to you. Some of you in this room, you have already said yes to that invitation and you know what that joy is like when you are lost but now you're found. But there are others of us in this room that you are now, right now, where you sit, still living in sin. You're doing all that you could today to put the, the guilt and the shame behind you so you can walk into this room for one hour, put the smile on your face, and walk out and be like, "Woo! fooled them for another week. I'm telling you, there is freedom in Christ. Hear him call your name. You do not have to be defined by what you did or what you have done. Your new identity is a child of God because of what Christ has done on your behalf. Would you trust him today? Pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for coming to seek and save the lost. Thank you that I was lost, but now I am found. And it is not because of what I've done, but because of what you've done, Lord Jesus. That is our stories across this room for those who are redeemed. But Lord, I pray for those in this room who may be living in sin today and they are at their wits end. They don't know what to do with this life. They can't hide anymore. They, they're filled with guilt and shame and they are thinking about how do I get past this? Oh, Jesus, stand in their way. God, show them that you are the only way. That in Christ there is therefore now no condemnation for those who come. Holy Spirit, move, please. Call our names. Draw us to you. And may we walk, live, and respond in the joy of one who was lost but is now found. Thank you, God, for knowing us fully and still choosing to love us. Oh, Lord, help us to respond rightly. It is in your name that we pray and we now respond. Church, would you stand with me?